Hey everyone, Paul here. This week's episode is a recording from a sermon I preached this past summer on Paul's encounter with the philosophers on Mars Hill. We've talked a lot over the past few months about Christ and culture, but we haven't necessarily explored in that conversation particular scenes from scripture which might be apropos to this discussion. So you'd be hard-pressed to find another scene from the scriptures that might be more appropriate to discussions about Christ and culture than the scene from the book of Acts. I also wanted to let you know before getting into this recorded sermon that I've also put out this week a Q&A episode for those who are in the Patreon community. In this Q&A episode, I address some of the questions those members in the Deep Talks Patreon community have had for me. And we spend a a good bit of time uh, discussing questions or a response to a question about God's wrath. God's wrath and the cross, God's wrath and atonement, God's wrath and how we may talk about it or sing about it. Should we even talk about it or sing about it? Is it even a thing? Is that a wrong word to describe God and who he is? Does he actually experience wrath? So if you're interested in that, you can become, again, a member over at the Deep Talks Patreon community. You'll see a link in the description to this podcast, and you can find out how you can get involved there. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Again, it's a recording from a sermon I gave this past summer. And I thought it might be helpful to share it with you guys. Some people that are actually in the Patreon community may have already heard this as it was something I shared with them a while back. But maybe you haven't heard it. I hope you find this helpful as you've been ruminating on some of the cultural theology we've discussed on this podcast. So take a listen. Our scripture text today is Acts 17, verses 16 to 34. You can find it in your pew Bible in front of you. On page 926 and 927, I'm going to start today. I'm going to read this wonderful, very unique and intriguing scene from the life of Paul, recorded in Acts 17. Starting in verse 16, now, Paul, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Would therefore you worship as unknown? This I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. 
And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, who both inspired this text and also is active in illuminating it for us, so that we can come to know you, to understand how you've designed reality to work, and how you've invited us to participate in what you're doing in creation. So we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you help us and empower us to be kingdom-minded people in the world. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, I don't know if you guys have noticed this or not, but there's, there's been a bit of 80s, 90s nostalgia resurgence happening in our culture. Um, it's all the rage today. Someone took this picture, I'm going to put it up here, of the now playing sign at their local movie theater. Have you guys seen this? And it, it kind of went viral. And I, hopefully you can read the, uh, the movies that are playing. We got Toy Story, Men in Black, Godzilla, Aladdin, Child's Play. Now, I imagine like if for some reason a, a, a time traveler from the future had this important message that he needed to bring back to 29 and for some, 2019 and for some reason got beamed right in front of this sign at the movie theater, he might have thought, my time machine's broke. I ended up in the 90s, right? This is like you could have gone to a movie theater in the 90s and seen the same exact sign. Now, some people look at this sort of 80s, 90s nostalgia, and they think uh, it's just lazy writing, right? It's just people trying to grab money. But actually, you know, there's, there's another theory that behavioral scientists have proposed based on some of the empirical research done with patients who report feelings of losing meaning and purpose for living. And this is what they propose. When individuals or even entire civilizations lose sight of their meaning and purpose for existence, they recall their old stories. They use nostalgia or the intentional reflection upon their most important stories to try to stabilize themselves in a bit of a crisis of meaning. We look to these stories to remind us of our values, our beliefs, our identity. People look to their cultural stories to give them a map for navigating life, a map for making their story mean something in the grand story of history. So, 90s movies getting rebooted isn't the only sign that our neighbors in our American culture might be in a full-on crisis of meaning and searching for a better story. I don't know if you know this or not, but these are some pretty sobering statistics that suicide is the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34. The only thing that's higher than that are like accidents, like car accidents, the second leading cause of death. 
Among people ages 35 to 54, it's the fourth leading cause of death. And I think just anecdotally, you guys can probably observe as you watch the news or you maybe talk to people, that the political divide and the ethical divide between people who live in major urban areas like Minneapolis and those who live out in the suburbs or country seems to be widening. But the good news is, guys, that these, these cultural collisions that we're experiencing right now and people searching for meaning and purpose and, and losing sight of, of where they fit in the grand story is nothing new. These, these cultural collisions have been happening since the biblical days. <laughs> and understanding that these cultural collisions happen, how these happen now, might actually appreciate, help you appreciate the world the book of Acts takes place within. It's hard to actually understand the book of Acts, even today's text, or really any of the New Testament, without understanding these massive cultural collisions that were happening in this ancient world. And it was culminating in this first century, the, the century that the, the New Testament was written in and the book of Acts was written in, as the, the implications of Jesus's good news message brushed up against these cultural stories that people had believed. And among Jews and non-Jewish Gentiles, they all had told themselves these stories about God. They had stories about who God was, how the way the world should be. Ever since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem and hauled off into captivity many of the surviving remnants all the way back in 586 BC, the Jewish people had to remain on guard because now they've been hauled off into captivity and they're facing the very real dangers of cultural assimilation as they're no longer among their own people, no longer able to practice their own beliefs, their own religion, to tell their people's story they're in the sh on the shores of Babylon. And so they feel this danger of having their story completely assimilated into their larger cultural story. And then they go from being the property of the Babylonians to the property of the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. Now, sometimes these emperor kings would let people in these cultures that they conquered hold on to their God, hold on to their cultural story, as long as it didn't upset the empire's apple cart. Then there were others who were a little bit less tolerant. There were those like the Greek Seleucid king named Antiochus IV, who you, you see up here, strapping gentlemen, right? <laughs> 160 to 170 years before Christ was born, Antiochus IV mandated that the Jewish people fully assimilate into the Greek culture. One of the things that he does, which is, is so hard to wrap our mind around, he demands that the Jews, he enters into the temple and places a statue of Zeus on the altar of the temple in Jerusalem. Even demands that the Jewish people worship this God instead of Yahweh now. And he even has the, the guts to call himself, the nickname he gave himself was Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, which meant that he thought, Epiphanes, that he thought he was the visible manifestation of the God Zeus. So how do you think the Jewish people took to this idea? Not very well. There was a rebellion that happened. The Jews rebelled, and, and they rebelled in what is likely the first war for what we might call in today's vernacular religious freedom in, in human history, led by a guy named Judah 
the hammer, Judah Maccabees. These Maccabean revolutionaries were, were actually temporarily successful in kicking out the Greek Seleucid king and their government. They go and they cleanse the temple. They get rid of the statue of Zeus. They purify it. They temporarily set up their own government. And this is actually, just in case you were wondering, I'm sorry, I'm a bit of a history nerd. This is actually what the Jewish people still celebrate today as Hanukkah, if you didn't know that. Hanukkah is the eight-day celebration of when the Jewish people reclaimed the temple from Antiochus IV. But not all the Jews of that day were on board with the rebellion. In fact, there's a somewhat sad twist to this story. It wasn't like they just lived happily ever after, after they kicked the Greek Seleucids out. The Jewish people didn't permanently even gain their independence, as you guys probably know from even a few Sunday school classes. There were plenty of Jews that actually had found many facets of the Greek culture to be an improvement to Jewish culture. And they actually didn't want to be engaged in any culture war. They actually didn't even want to be engaged, especially in any sort of physical, real war with their Greek overlords. These were called Hellenistic Jews. And they lived predominantly in Jerusalem in the urban center, and they served in the temple. And they were the ones that actually helped install the worship of Zeus. So can you imagine that? You've got a group of Jews that are like, they're assimilating us. They've put in this foreign God in there. And then you've got some other people in the culture that are like, eh, we're kind of all right with this. So we've got this serious cultural collision that's happening. And they were the ones that ended up striking a deal when the Greek Seleucid Empire collapsed. And here came the Romans to town. These Hellenistic Jews were the ones that cut a deal with the Romans. And they said, hey, you know, we'll give you the political power. You help keep us in power. And the Romans like, that's a good deal. And so the Romans install this puppet king named Herod the Great. How many of you guys have heard that name before? Okay, it's not Christmas time, but you should be familiar with that name. And Herod and the Romans ensured that these Hellenistic Jews would stay in power. They became known as the Sadducees. And they stayed in these top positions of wealth and power. Those that were sympathetic to the revolutionaries, the more Maccabean way, and wanted to protect the old religious traditions from being destroyed through assimilation became known as the, anyone want to take a guess? The Pharisees. So that should give you, you know, sometimes we read the Gospels, we see Pharisees and Sadducees just think, well, they're all just snobby, elitist, religious people, and that's not the case. They're very divisive political and religious factions, right? And the Pharisees lived not primarily in the urban center of Jerusalem, they managed the synagogues on the outskirts of town. Sound familiar? We've got a cultural collision happening here. And all this setup is important because by the time Jesus is on the scene, you've got this extremely tense and volatile cult culture war brewing between these different factions of Jewish people. You've got this tension, not just between Jews against other Jews, but Jews against non-Jewish Gentiles, and the constant threat at any time of a Gentile empire, emperor coming in, and he could just wipe out your civilization, and there's nothing you could do about it. And of course, the Gentiles were kind of weirded out by this Jewish religion and culture too. And then they got even more concerned about this new group of Christians in the first century. This was an anxiety-inducing and exhausting time to be alive. All the while, Israel is waiting, as we lead up into this first century, for the promised fulfillment of their story. When will the Messiah come and deliver us? 
When will he deliver again? The important thing is us. And again, you have to keep in mind that there's these different factions of what the Messiah is going to be like and notions of what he's going to do. Maybe like maybe the Sadducees were hoping he'd be like David and reign with majesty and power and political prowess from Jerusalem. Or, or maybe he'll be like Judah the hammer and rise up with a sword to kick out all of these terrible Gentiles, these enemies of God, and he'll demand full Torah observance, just like the way it should be. Well, behind each of these hopes is the hope that the group we think is the in-group will be justified, and those outsiders, the out-group, will be condemned. Now, before you're tempted to think how sad those ancient primitive people I've seen a similar story in my own lifetime. I'm 35. In many ways, the, the evangelical Christian tradition that I grew up in, in the 80s and 90s, held to a, a similar view as the Pharisees. The biggest thing I kind of remember about as a kid growing up, and there were many great things that my parents, my home church instilled in me, my Christian school that I went to. There were many wonderful things, but there were also some downsides to it. I remember always living with this feeling of we are being threatened with cultural assimilation. But instead of like Greco-Roman culture, like the Jewish people were in the first century, it was the threat of things like secularism or those liberals out there, right? Youth group for me, this is so hard for some of you to imagine. I'm so glad Jason, Pastor Jason, doesn't do this sort of stuff. But youth group for me, I have frequent memories of watching videos that explain to me how, you know, someone went from playing the card game Dungeons and Dragons to the very next moment suddenly performing actual human sacrifice and worshiping Satan. <laughs> and then I actually even attended, this is not a joke, guys, I attended youth conferences where real actual cult coffins were carted and rolled around as kids were told to throw away their secular music in the coffin. Some of you are like, no, that can't be. It legitimately happened, right? Throw that secular music away or else you're practicing idolatry. Now, it was probably good for me to throw away some of the stuff I was listening to, but did I really have to throw out my Kenny G albums? I felt like I felt like that was just, just one ask too much. I really wanted to hold on to my Kenny G. I never had Kenny G albums, but... But that was kind of the point. Like, there was no dividing line. There was the out group, and then there was the in group. If you want to be saved, if you want to have social acceptance, you follow all these in group rules, and you better leave those outsiders out there because they're a threat to you. Like those ancient Pharisees, the problem that developed in me was that I was subtly learning to believe that my righteousness was based all on my ability to follow our in-group rules. Along with that, I developed this massive problem. I, I, I constantly felt threatened by the people in the out-group. In many ways, I felt, if you can kind of pick up on the analogy, that I was a good Torah-practicing Israelite, and the world out there was filled with pagan Gentiles or liberal Sadducees who got God all wrong. And my interactions with them were anxiety-inducing. Yeah, we, we were told to love our neighbors, but as far as we were concerned, our secular neighbors had Zeus on their altars, and it was only gonna be a matter of time before they eventually demanded of us that we worship him too. 
Because so many of us develop this anxiety or fear for our neighbors and other cultures, when this happens, we don't seek to truly understand the stories they believe about reality or genuinely attempt to see the world through their cultural eyes. Guys, it's hard to love your neighbor when you don't understand them. So I want to turn our attention directly back to our scripture text this morning. What we see in Acts is what we see in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't just come as the Messiah to complete the Jewish story. He comes to complete the story of all humanity. While this is ultimately good news, it feels like bad news first because it eats away at our in-group self-righteousness, the self-righteousness we develop because we feel like we're following all the in-group rules perfectly. So the good news comes to us as bad news first because it eats away at that. Take, for example, another scene from the author of Acts, Luke. Luke wrote both the Gospel of Luke and he also wrote the book of Acts. And in in chapter four of his Gospel, there's this scene maybe many of you are familiar with Jesus is in the synagogue. It's his turn to read scripture that morning at church. You know, they didn't call it church, but at synagogue. And he gets up and he reads this passage from Isaiah. And he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolls up the scroll. And I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. And he goes, This scripture we've been reading all our lives about what the Messiah is going to do when he comes, I'm the guy. And at first, actually, everyone is like, yes, awesome. The Messiah is here. He's going to set our team free, and he's going to kick the butts of the other team. We're going to show the world that we were always God's chosen people. But then Jesus keeps talking, and he's listing off these times recorded in the Old Testament where God's favor went to Gentiles instead of their people. Go read that in Luke 4 sometime this week. It goes to Gentiles, outsiders, pagans, threats. They picked up on what Jesus was saying and then just lost it. The crowds turn on him. This is crazy. They run him out of the synagogue and they actually try to throw him off of a cliff. And he gets away. This is why what Jay preached on last Sunday in Acts chapter 2 is so scandalous because this is God's story. It's not our story. This is God's story. And who he invites to participate in it might offend our self-righteous in-group versus out-group dynamics. At Pentecost, it's Gentiles, those outsiders that end up understanding these spirit-inspired tongues and responding to God's redemptive story. Then later in Acts... It becomes a major controversy because all these Gentiles, those pagans, those threats, the outsiders, keep becoming followers of a Jewish Messiah. And they're getting baptized with the Holy Spirit and even apostles like Peter aren't totally sure what to do about this. Yes, Jesus preached about this stuff, but now it was happening in real life, like in their life. And they didn't know how to handle it. So now here in Athens, let's go back to Athens in Acts chapter 16 or chapter 17. This is the epicenter 
of culture and philosophy in the ancient Mediterranean world. Here, Paul would bring the story of Jesus to the place where the great minds of Socrates and Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno once told their own stories of what they believed reality and God was like. Not only was this the home of great philosophers, but Athens was also a city full of idols and the home of kind of the more common Greeks' folk paganism. Far from being just considered works of art, like we might look at the beautiful statues that happened and were constructed in Athens today, these statues were considered in many pagan religions, including the Greek sort of folk religion, to be physical portals to the gods and embodiments of their very being. These are idols, and we can't even get our minds around it today, what that would have been like to believe that a physical thing gave you this access to a spiritual world. Now, remember back when Antiochus IV, that, you know, that guy we had pictured up earlier, placed that statue of Zeus in the temple at Jerusalem? Paul who received one of the finest educations a Jewish person who was also a Roman citizen could afford. And maybe you remember this, Paul was a trained Pharisee. So think about the cultural story that Paul was raised in and remembering back the story of the Maccabees and remembering the stories of Zeus being placed in the temple as a defiant act to the one true God. Here he is, in a city full of idols to Zeus and these other false gods, how would he respond? Okay, so we see that he's rightfully angered by the idol worship, knowing there is so much false and destructive and unhealthy things about the story that many of these Athenian people had come to believe. But Paul also knew that God was at work in their culture, and he was at work in these Greek people's stories. Jesus had changed Saul the Pharisee, who had once prided himself on his self-righteous ability to follow all the in-group rules and had actively persecuted those who threatened the Pharisees' vision of God's grand story, into Paul the apostle to the outsiders, the good news messenger to the Gentiles. Jesus' message simultaneously affirmed elements of what people believed was true, good, and beautiful, as we're going to see in more detail here. And yet it also prophetically corrected what was false, destructive, and unhealthy about their cultural stories. The Holy Spirit opened Paul's eyes to the reality that God hadn't just been working to reveal himself to the Jewish people only. God hadn't just been working in this tiny sliver of people amongst all the human race. He was calling them to a particular vocation in the world, a vocation for them to be a royal priesthood. But we shouldn't think that meant that God just left the rest of the world and the vast majority of the human race to die alone. I mean, we step back and think about that for a moment. What what kind of God would that be? No, he called the Jewish people to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation, to be faithful and bearing witness to God's story. But God was at work in these other cultures and in the human race. As even Paul says in his sermon here on Mars Hill, a place, by the way, named after the Greek god of war, who the Romans considered to be the father of their civilization. 
That God has always been at work, the God of the scriptures had always been at work in all peoples, and that he is, quote, not far from each one of us. When Paul is brought before the very top philosophers and thinkers in Athens, the Areopagus, I want us to all notice his approach. What does Paul, who has been transformed by Christ, do? First, he highlights the good already present in their cultural stories. If you have your Bibles open, let's just observe a few things here in the text. In verse 22, he commends them on their religious devotion, even if that devotion is misguided. He also finds common ground in shared beliefs. You see that in verse 23. Down in verse 28, 29, he, we see that he demonstrates that he cares by knowing enough about their culture and their beliefs to even be able to quote from their own cultural and religious story. Here, instead of quoting scripture, which it would have made no sense to his audience because the Bible held no authority over their life and didn't inform their story at all, Paul, and this is so scandalous, guys, Paul quotes two religious poems. He actually quotes two worship songs to Zeus. With the second one being from a song of worship to Zeus written 300 years before Christ. I've got a, 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 a screenshot of this here from this text. Take a look at this. This was a poem, a worship song written to Zeus 300 years before Christ. Let us begin with Zeus. Never, O men, let us leave him unmentioned. All the ways are full of Zeus and all the marketplaces of human beings. The sea is full of him. So are the harbors. In every way, we have all to do with Zeus, for we are truly his offspring. Biblical scholars have long noted that Paul is adaptly borrowing and reframing this story. This leads us to the second thing that Paul does. He reframes the good that is at work in their story. Notice he doesn't just throw it out and say, hey, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna bring the Bible verses to you first. He starts by saying, you know, there's some things here that you guys believed about Zeus, but I'm gonna show you and I'm gonna reframe how what you are looking for is actually fulfilled in a more true and better story. But listen, listen, it's not that God wasn't at work. You just missed some things and we need to reframe this for you. Paul points out that some of these things they attributed to Zeus didn't need to be thrown out, just reframed into a more true, good, and beautiful story in light of Christ. Part of this reframing, though, requires that the false, destructive, and unhealthy ideas be thrown out. And we see that in verse 29 through 30. Paul doesn't just leave them in that story because he knows that the story they were believing, though there was truth in it, there was a lot of false, destructive, and unhealthy things that were going to lead them to do things. And if you want to figure out some of this stuff, I can't mention some of the worship practices of the pagans in uh, an audience with children, but it's some horrific stuff. And so that part of that story led them to do horrible, horrible, unmentionable things as part of their worship. Paul wasn't just going to leave them there with that. There was a better story. And finally, Paul shows how Christ completes their story. Not everybody accepted it. We see the end of the, the scene here in our text. Not everybody was like, whoo, sign me up. But some people did. 
including a guy named Dionysus, who, according to, we can maybe say church legend, we don't know if this is factual or not, but some of church history holds that this Dionysus ended up starting the first philosophical, Christian philosophical school in Athens. So some people were impacted by it. Church, God is at work in the stories and culture of people we might be inclined to think of as outsiders and pagans. When we see these signs of cultural instability around us, when we see suicide on the incline, when we see really, really bad reboots of 90s movies, it's a sign that something is happening in our culture. There's some instability. When that happens, the evidence that so many of our neighbors may be experiencing a full-on crisis of meaning, when that happens, it's not time to go to war with them. We're not in a culture war, guys. We're called to care for the culture that God is at work in. Christ has removed our self-righteous in-group versus out-group identity markers. The real Jesus knocks us off of our pharisaical high horse. God's not far from your Muslim neighbor, your atheist neighbor, your Trump-supporting neighbor, or your Bernie Sanders-supporting neighbor. He's not far from the movie theater where people go watch stories of, maybe you can pick up on this. Like, seems like every superhero movie, the story is about someone who sacrifices their life for the sake of the world and people can't think of a more higher ideal of heroism. Why is that? The culture might be searching for the story of Jesus. He's not far from the person binging The Office on Netflix for the fifth time because they secretly deep down want community like they see the characters in that show experiencing. He's not far from our college campuses. He's not far from our libraries. He's not far from our bookstores. No, as Paul says, he's not far from each one of us. So let's pray together. Father, by the power of the Spirit, may we build our lives on the story of Jesus. May we be people who highlight every ounce of God's goodness, truth, and beauty wherever we see it in the world. And may we be people with love and wisdom who can reframe and complete the story that our culture and the entire world longs to be fulfilled. In your name, amen. A special thanks today to Patreon members, Paul, Elizabeth, and Sam. Thank you guys, especially for your contributions and for supporting this podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing and you're finding it helpful and valuable, would you please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts? That's still the number one place people are going to listen to podcasts and find out new podcasts. So if you leave a review there, it's really helpful in allowing people to discover this podcast. And as always, I invite all of you to reach out to me with questions, comments, feedback, even objections or disagreements you might have with the things presented in these episodes. I welcome that sort of dialogue. I think it's one of the more beneficial ways that we can both grow and people can grow together is in dialogue and in exchanging ideas. So you can reach out to me on Twitter. You'll find a link to my Twitter feed in the description of this podcast below. Reach out to me on there. You can also find me on Instagram too. And uh, you can also find uh, video content on YouTube 
any of those places are great places to reach out to me. I hope to hear from you guys soon. Till next time. <laughs>